welcome you. And uh, Dr. Dennis Palmer uh, and I will, and Bill Lawton, will talk about adaptations for peritoneal dialysis in Sub-Saharan Africa and lessons from Cameroon. And uh, I am an internist and a nephrologist, and I'm going to start off a little bit with uh, just an introduction of don't know, obviously, the interests of everyone, and we welcome you and are glad you're here, and maybe we'll leave time for questions and answers to see how this relates, but uh, I'm going to start off with just sort of a general introduction to uh, dialysis itself, and uh, Dennis is going to talk about uh, the adaptations uh, in Cameroon, and uh, let me just switch for a second here. So let's just talk a little bit about peritoneal dialysis, just what it is. And an overview of dialysis. Uh, we're going to talk about just the explanation of what is this peritoneal dialysis. Some of you are familiar, others may not be. And a little bit about the prescription. So what First of all, are the goals of dialysis? Uh, this is part, sometimes called renal replacement therapy, and it's trying to correct what the kidneys would, quote, keep in balance if they still work. And we're going to focus on acute kidney injury, AKI, uh, trying to see if anybody has a... Uh, <coughs> gray hairs in this room. Uh, an older term is uh, acute renal failure, ARF, but the kidneys are not always in failure, and a better term is uh, AKI, acute kidney injury. We'll try to avoid a, <coughs> just a lot of abbreviations. But the goal of acute kidney injury is to support the patient until the kidneys regain function when it cannot be done medically. And the goals here are to remove the waste products of metabolism that the kidneys normally uh, remove, especially to remove and control potassium, which uh, can be life-threatening if too high, uh, to correct the acidosis, and to remove the excess volume of sodium and water. Just a big overview, types of dialysis. Most of you are probably familiar with hemodialysis, which requires machines. Machines need maintenance. Uh, certainly in the West, uh, in North America, Western Europe, and uh, developed parts of the world, hemodialysis uh, predominates. It does require access to the blood by a catheter or an arterial venous fistula in the arm or a graft. It requires purified water, and this is a huge amount, and uh, it can be a huge barrier. 120 liters of uh, purified water per treatment requires electricity. What about peritoneal dialysis through the abdomen? No electricity, no special water required. No special machine required, less expensive, may have complications, but of course hemodialysis may have complications as well. Just a quick overview of hemodialysis. It needs to be a machine. Uh, the blood is removed uh, through an arterial line, goes through the artificial kidney or the filter, 
So now we need a filter, we need a machine, we need electricity. Uh, it's then returned and running counter current to the blood in the uh, dialyzer in the artificial kidney are, is all this purified fluid. Uh, so it requires substantial water purification as well. And then it requires uh, significant surgery to create uh, arteriovenous connection or a catheter. So hemodialysis is labor-intensive, expensive, uh, and requires things that uh, are not readily available in resource-poor settings. Now, what is peritoneal dialysis? Peritoneal dialysis utilizes the lining of the peritoneum. There's a parietal uh, peritoneum, and then there's reflection on all of our vital organs. And this is done with a bag containing... uh, a dialysate solution runs into the abdomen through a catheter, dwells for a period of time, removes uh, metabolic products, and then is drained. And just a couple comments on the anatomy of the peritoneal membrane. I mentioned that there are two layers, uh, and it's amazing with the surface area. The parietal peritoneum the one lining the outside of the, or the, actually the inside of the abdominal cavity has about 20% of the surface area. The visceral peritoneum, and all of these are richly supplied by blood, mesenteric arteries, abdominal wall has about 80%. Look at the surface area. It approximates the body surface area up to about 2 meters squared in adults. So there's a large area that's richly uh, <coughs> supplied by blood, that if you get fluid uh, next to it, you can have a transfer of solute and liquid. And inflammation will increase the effect of peritoneal surface area, not something we desire, but can cause uh, one of the complications of peritoneal dialysis. So let's talk just briefly about what goes on now in peritoneal dialysis. So there are three uh, transport processes. The biggie is diffusion. The next is osmosis and convection. I'll define those. So diffusion, movement of a solute from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. And what kind of metabolic waste products do we need to remove in renal failure? We're talking about urea, BUN. We're talking about creatinine. Obviously, we're talking about adjusting potassium, removing excess potassium. So that's diffusion. So that's going on. Uh, Osmosis, a term given to the movement of water through a semi-permeable membrane, and I have a little diagram that, again, don't want to insult your intelligence, but uh, sometimes it's helpful to review these. Uh, And the diagram will, again, show what happens with osmosis in uh, peritoneal dialysis. And then convection is the water moves by osmosis uh, from inside the blood vessels and the capillaries into the peritoneal cavity. It also does bring some solute with it. But we really depend on the diffusion a lot uh, to get rid of the metabolic waste products. Okay, diffusion, movement of solute. This is represents, and I don't know if the arrows are showing up on both sides. Okay. So let's uh, just think for a moment that all of these little dots represent the excess urea that has built up. Okay, This is in the blood compartment. What is our semi-permeable membrane? This is the peritoneal membrane. 
decay. It retains, for example, protein uh, in the capillaries, but it allows small solutes then to go to an area where there's no urea. So obviously the dialysate fluid, and we're going to talk more about that, doesn't have any of the nitrogenous waste products. So that's diffusion. And the diffusion is highest in the first hour. I have a little picture to show you. The gradient is largest and decreases over time. By four hours, urea, which transports uh, quite readily, is 90% equilibrated. Creatinine doesn't move quite as quickly, about 60% equilibrated. And then further small solute removal is modest after about four hours. And if we just focus on this side, this is a measurement of dialysate creatinine over the plasma creatinine. So when we reach one, everything that's in the plasma is now in the fluid in the abdomen, in the peritoneal fluid. And if you look on the horizontal scale, by four hours, uh, the uh, rate of transfer begins to taper off. Uh, there are different characteristics in different patients. Some are high transporters, some are lower. But on average, we'll get out about 60 to 80 percent of the creatinine in four hours. And if you run the dialysate and leave the same fluid in there, the uh, metabolic products in the blood have already transferred into the abdomen, and you're not going to get a lot more dialysis. So what does this tell us? How often do we have to do this? So... The fluid needs to be changed, uh, and in general, we do this four times a day. So, which means that some of the patients, uh, on average, may be running about six hours. If you have trouble getting rid of waste products, they can uh, run. Uh, exchanges can be done a little more frequently. Okay, uh, and so we've talked about diffusion, movement of solute. Now let's talk about osmosis. So this is the movement of water, <coughs> basically. And this diagram in the speaker represents, a, again, a selectively permeable membrane. And this is a sugar solution. Water is less concentrated. Okay. And this is dilute sugar. And which way now will the water move? The water is going to be pulled to the area where there are more particles, uh, higher osmolarity. So the water moves from either no sugar or uh, uh, if you represent this, for example, as the blood with a normal blood sugar to an area of high sugar, which is added in one of the components in the fluid. Okay, so I think it's important to look at uh, just kind of some of the concepts of what we're trying to do. And I'll just go quickly. So what is in this peritoneal dialysis fluid? There's some sodium, chloride, lactate. Aha, why do we put lactate in there? Some of these patients are acidotic. Dr. Walton don't want them to get lactic acidosis. Well, we are depending now on a healthy liver. What does the liver do with your lactate? You switch it to bicarbonate. And uh, there are problems with storage uh, of bicarbonate if it's put in the fluid directly. Calcium, magnesium, pH tends to be on the acid side for stability, and glucose. Okay. So these are balanced electrolytes. Uh, the uh, lactate that is in there to help correct the acidosis, okay, and will be transported into the body uh, if there are adjustments needed between the calcium, magnesium, so forth. That, that can occur. Sodium is on the low side because what is the volume status of our patients in renal failure? Over 
obviously they're overloaded, so we don't want to be transferring a high sodium content back. And what's the glucose in there for? Uh -huh. Pull, to pull out the water, okay, which provides the osmotic driving force, and uh, thank you, already answered for me. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's just, now, there are three solutions. Uh, so, uh, if we look at the glucose concentration on this side, 1.5 grams per deciliter. Well, how do we measure glucose? It's in milligrams per deciliter, so this is... 1,500 milligrams per deciliter in the weakest solution that we use. So the osmolarity of the fluid uh, is about 350. And what's the normal osmolarity of our blood? It's around 280 or 290. So just to take a step back, there are more particles in the dialysate due to the glucose. And what's going to happen to the water? The water will come across. So it's called ultrafiltration, and we should be able, when we talk about an exchange, we're talking about an exchange for about four hours, four to six hours, we should be able to get off around 100 mLs, but each patient is so variable. And then there are two other higher concentrations of glucose, so the higher strength glucose, 4.25 grams per deciliter of glucose, can get off around 400 uh, uh, MLs uh, or sometimes higher per exchange. And I can tell you back in my days as a fellow, they did make an 8 gram per deciliter solution that we were told to never use by itself and always mix with something else. And so guess what the young doctors would do in the olden day? They would try the 8. And what happens if you have a huge, huge, huge amount of uh, glucose in the abdomen? What happens to the blood sugar? Mm. So anyway, the, these are the, the, the three strains that are uh, available. They've taken that one off the market. Uh, okay, so why do we consider doing um, peritoneal dialysis uh, for acute in injury? One, and these uh, are the same reasons that these are also done in the U.S. and North America and uh, Western Europe. Uh, renal replacement therapy for the treatment of acute kidney injury in children. There are problems, obviously, with access and hemodialysis in children. Hemodynamically unstable patients. Uh, remember, this is now a continuous process done over a 24-hour period, generally four exchanges. If there's a bleeding complication with the artificial kidney hemodialysis, you need to anticoagulate the patient. Uh, if patients uh, do have difficulties and you can't gain vascular access, you can consider the peritoneal. Uh, and then uh, certain high molecular weight toxins can also be removed by peritoneal dialysis. <coughs> couple comments. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but one problem has to do with care of the exit site. Uh, this is a split picture, but here we have the catheter exiting. Uh, good hand washing protocols to clean the exit site. Here is a peritoneal catheter. The exit site is covered. Obviously, we want to avoid this. If we have exit site infection, this can predispose to, obviously, what can happen next? Peritonitis. Peritonitis, absolutely. Okay. And the complications of peritoneal dialysis include peritonitis, exit site infections, 
there's a uh, tunnel that is made uh, by our surgical colleagues to get the catheter in that can get infected. Patients can become hypotensive with excess fluid removal. One of the problems uh, also that we see is poor inflow and or drainage uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Our staff is uh, instructed to call if the patient uh, has severe abdominal pain. That should not be a problem. I've mentioned potential problems of hypoglycemia, obviously, in our diabetic patients. And if the drainage becomes bloody, this also is a complication that shouldn't be occurring. Uh, and a couple comments, and uh, Dr. Palmer actually is going to show how this is, uh, how we kind of practice practically. I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail, but uh, how effective the dialysis is has to do with how long the patients are on dialysis, what's in the composition of the dialysis, the volumes that go in and out, number of exchanges, and so forth. And terribly important that, uh, and this gets confusing uh, for, again, the nursing and uh, other staff that assist with this to monitor the fluid balance. Just a little picture of the type of catheters. You saw one in the bigger picture, but catheters basically uh, are tubes. Uh, coiled catheters don't get stuck in omentum, we think, quite as easily. Lots of holes, so the fluid goes in and out. And the uh, most successful ones have two cuffs. If we look up here, this is the outer world. This is the abdominal wall. There's a a cuff here and then a cuff uh, farther down in the abdominal wall. This is subcute tissue. Here's the peritoneum and uh, capillary loops. But these cuffs uh, then provide barriers for infection. And I think I, I won't uh, belabor this, except there are techniques to uh, the fluid runs in, as I mentioned, dwells and then runs out. But before the next exchange is done with clean fluid, it's been found that if you just run the fluid this way through the external tubing before you run it back into the patient, this helps to reduce the incidence of infection. Okay, and I think I will end here, but I want to make one uh, comment as to why I'm here and uh, just what happens at this meeting and just uh, how the Lord leads. Uh, My wife was physical therapist and I were first at this meeting uh, four years ago. Uh, So we're talking 2012 and as you can tell, uh, I... uh, involved with the Christian Medical Dental Association and the Medical Education International. I was at the booth. My wife, Patsy, found a whole other floor of exhibitors that we didn't even know existed. And out of the 200 or so exhibitors, it seemed like the Lord took her by the hand, and guess who she met? The Palmers. And there, with at, at their booth for the Bengal Hospital, there was a request for a physical therapist and a nephrologist. And what would a nephrologist be doing in uh, a remote but beautiful part of Cameroon? Uh, and uh, Dr. Palmer's going to tell you a little bit more about this, but of course, the call was so clear, and we have just had an amazing experience coming alongside the uh, the architect uh, who set the vision for the program. Dennis, I'll turn it over to you.
Okay, so what uh, what I wanted to do is to talk about how we actually uh, got involved in, in setting up a peritoneal dialysis program because you can have all of the theory and most of us, I mean, I'm an internist, but never had any experience doing peritoneal dialysis on my own and thought that it was probably something way beyond me because, I, you know, it, it sounds very, very complicated and as uh, Bill has explained, there is a lot of physiology and uh, pathophysiology that's that's behind that. Uh, I don't know much about all of that, actually, but it turns out that from a practical perspective, you have to have, you have to be able to put a catheter in somebody's belly, and you have to have these solutions, which um, you run them in, and you go away, and then you come back, and you drain them out, and that's pretty much what it entails. So it was a much simpler thing in practice, and it's it's the sort of thing that we actually could accomplish in our in our hospital. So um, this is the required missionary uh, map. Uh, And Bingo is in the northwest province, uh, right up in about in the middle of that little red circle there is where we're located. Uh, Bingo was originally a leprosy settlement. Uh, It's uh, now grown into a 300-bed hospital with uh, training programs and uh, other things that are a lot of other things going on. This is what it looks like. It's in the mountains. It would, it's one of the more beautiful places uh, that I've been, and uh, we think it would be a national park in most places uh, here in the U.S. It's got uh, so uh, the hospital has grown. It was I have pictures of it from back in the 1950s. There wasn't much there in those days. Um, to do perineal dialysis, you have to have a surgeon who can put the catheter in. And this is Dr. Brown, who's the head of our surgery program. So the surgeons are getting pretty good at it. Turns out that this is the Achilles heel of the whole process, we think. Because if the catheter is not well placed, um, you can almost always, we've never had trouble getting fluid to go into the belly. You hold the bag up high and it does run in. It has positive pressure. But to get it to run out uh, and drain it, you have to have the catheter has to be well placed and that's where the surgeons come in because if it if they don't get it, apparently the, the omentum really loves this stuff and it finds those little holes and it goes down and plugs them up. And and so the most common problem that we have had is uh, poor drainage. If the catheter drains well, generally that's uh, the major, uh, that's things go well for us. Um, you have to have laboratory. We have developed our laboratory in Bingo over the years. Um, we were doing peritoneal dialysis at times when we, our machines broke down. We did not have electrolytes. And basically, you've got to have a creatinine and you've got to have a potassium. The rest we don't care too much about. But if you can't really do this effectively, we had, we've had deaths uh, in this when we were not effectively monitoring potassium. Initially, as you know, most patients come in, the potassiums are high. Uh, we give them caxolate uh, to control that. Um, and that works works very well. Um, and um, after the first 24, 48 hours, the bigger problem is actually hypokalemia. And so at least some of the deaths we think that we were resulted from hypokalemia that we weren't able to effectively monitor. This is the but this is our new chemistry machine that we're running. And we ultrasound is very helpful. Uh, in a couple of settings, uh, one is we are, when we are assessing these patients initially, we always try to separate out those that have chronic uh, kidney disease. We don't 
want to get started. This is all, we're only doing this for acute kidney injury. Uh, we do have hemodialysis available in Cameroon. Um, it's uh, expensive. It's not so easily accessible to the patients, but it is there. So what we do is uh, if the patient um, has, uh, if they have small kidneys and come in with a very high creatinine, we assume that it must be some sort of chronic disease. We don't initiate peritoneal dialysis. So uh, we use it for that. We also use it to, when we are having trouble draining, a lot of times we want to know how much fluid is in there in the belly, and so we'll use a, put the ultrasound on, and you can kind of get a feel of how far behind you are and, and how, how much effort you have to put to get it all out. Uh, this is the first patient that we did dialysis on. This is about three years ago. The program was set up um, through a, a group called the Renal Research Foundation, uh, which is based in New York. They wanted, they were pushing to get peritoneal dialysis introduced into hospitals in sub-Saharan Africa. And, and initially, we, none of us were very excited about it, except the surgeons. And I'm not sure why they thought that was such a good deal, but they were the ones who pushed us into it, really. And um, so uh, the, they had funds at the foundation. They bought a 20-foot container full of uh, Fresenius, from Fresenius with all, everything we needed, uh, all the, the three different solutions that Bill talked about, the catheters, the tubing, all of this stuff. We had, uh, we've had an, uh, several nephrologists in the, uh, at the beginning uh, when we were first training on this to help us to set it up. And uh, this is the first patient. This is a little five-year-old girl who came in from Douala. This is six hours away that got up there. And she had, a, had acute renal failure from um, malaria. And uh, so this is, uh, you know, the, the peritoneal catheter is always an add-on for the surgeons. And it's, you know, just sticking a catheter. That's never a high, very high priority. So it's always the last thing they do before they go home. And... Uh, so this is it's always 10 o'clock at night when this happens. Um, that's where we initiate it because that's just kind of where it gets to be. Anyway, so there, you can't see everybody. These are two of our nurses that were trained uh, to do the exchanges. And but they're outside the curtain and surrounding this is about six or eight of us that were standing there watching this because this is very dramatic. Our first peritoneal dialysis patient. So they get all lined up and then somebody reaches up to that bag that's up on the top and opens the thing. And then the fluid starts to run in. And we're all standing there, and this is all it is. I mean, you know, and so after about five minutes of watching fluid run in, we all went home. And, uh, but that was it. So it's, it sounds very dramatic, but in fact, it's, it really isn't. And uh, this little girl was on, on PD for about a week and completely recovered her kidney function. So we were very encouraged uh, with the success we had with our first patient. Um, so Bill came along uh, about that time and has worked with our nurses and also helped us to develop uh, this. We have, a, we have a standard order sheet, which is, this is uh, what we're using. There's another backside I didn't display. But basically, uh, whoever's writing the orders, they just have to go through, fill in the blanks. And um, generally, uh, in adults, it's pretty easy. We start off with either, depending on their fluid status, uh, either 2.5 or even 4.5 if we're trying to pull their get their volume status corrected. Most of them then run on 1.5 uh, as we're just maintaining them. Um, you generally give them 2,000 cc's uh, per, and we dwell, our dwell times are typically about uh, 
four hours is what we're doing. We'll sometimes go to two hours if you're trying to, you know, most of, more of the fluid is pulled off in the first uh, first two hours. The longer you leave the fluid in, the less exchange you get. So if you really are trying to pull fluid every two hours, we'll get you a little bit more. And uh, so we do that. When they're stable, we do four. We need, probably could just do six. We still mostly do every four hours uh, with that. Uh, there's a flow sheet that we maintain where we, uh, the nurses uh, are very, it's very meticulously uh, measure in the, the fluid that they put in and, and out. They weigh it uh, to, to get the volume. There's a scale that's used, and then we keep a total over on the on the your right uh, of our positive negative balance. So that's how we kind of know where we're at. If if you get off a little bit, uh, you can always stick the ultrasound on and figure out how far away you are. If it's not draining well, sometimes the surgeons will take the patient back in and into the OR and reposition. Or And a lot of times if they do that, they pull all the fluid out for us. So we get to start over after that. Uh, this is this is a procedure. We had a nurse, uh, Amy Newfield, that was uh, came out and, and worked on this and really developed uh, a technique. So initially, the first half of the patients we did, we ran on that on that uh, the, those commercial solutions from Fresenius. When uh, after that those solutions got finished, the question was, well, what are we going to do? So we don't have any money to uh, be buying solutions and shipping them out from Germany. They're expensive. Uh, they go out of date. You have to have three different sol- uh, solutions, and we didn't. Anyway, I, having been out there a while, I didn't think that this was a sustainable kind of model. So in working with our nephrology people, we finally came up with the idea that that lactated ringers looks a whole lot like uh, peritoneal dialysis fluid. It's not exactly the same. It's got a little potassium and a little less lactate. But it's pretty darn close, and we have it, and that's its big advantage. And we also have D50. So um, we came up with a system uh, that we've been using on the last half of the patients that we've done that's where we, where we do our own uh, solutions, and that's what we're demonstrating. Basically, um, the procedure is that you lay out a sterile field, and you put, these, um, you put the fluid, the urinary bag, an infusion set, a syringe, um, that's what it kind of looks like. Um, so everything that we're using now, except the catheter, is stuff you can buy locally, uh, which is a major advantage. It makes it possible to have this kind of a sustainable thing. You can always walk around, grab your stuff, and if you need to do it. Um, the um, so you draw up. Depending, it's pretty simple. Fifty percent dextrose. If you uh, you put if you put um, 25, um, so I get my math right on this. We, we have it on the flow sheet. We have it on the flow sheet. That's why we don't have to think about it. 2550 or 75 cc's of this per liter of fluid either makes 1.5, 2.5, or uh, 4.25. It's, some, it's not exactly right. But it's, uh, so it's just drawn up in a syringe, squirted into the IV bag, and uh, then you hook the, the IV tubing into the bag, um, connect it up to a three-way stopcock. Um, the drainage catheter, um, the only small problem that we had with this system was you can't attach a urine drainage bag. It's designed to go on a Foley catheter. It wouldn't attach to a stopcock. So this is my, I claim this is my innovation, my contribution, which I, I found an, a piece of suction tubing. I cut it off into these 
sections, and it turns out that works very nicely uh, for it. And so we're now, uh, that's how you connect up the stopcock. Um, this is what it looks like when we're running it. Um, basically, you just, you know, you hook up an IV tubing, you run the fluid in, and then you let it sit and drain it out. That's about all it is. And you do that in a sterile technique. Uh, we have come up with it. The fewer times that you open the system, uh, you think we think that that decreases the amount of infection. So uh, one of our, we had a PD nurse that was there for a while. So we, what we do now is we change the tubing once a day. And then uh, as you do the exchanges, the only thing that's open is when you, when you change the IV, when you plug the IV bag. So it stays, it's a closed system uh, all the rest of the time. And then once a day, you, you change the, uh, the IV tubing and the urine drainage bag and, and dispose of that. So this is, what, this is our uh, results. Of, uh, we're up to, um, it started in 2013. We have 69 patients, uh, 20 in the first year, 9 the second. We were running out of, uh, uh, we ran out of fluid in that second year. That's, and we were trying to come up with this new system. But it's about, you see, it's about two a month or so is kind of on average of what we do with this. And it depends on the indication that, we, that we're accepting. Um, you can see the age range. Uh, a lot of kids in there, uh, about, uh, what is that, about 35, 34 that are uh, under 20. Um, uh, kind of half and half male, female. Uh, average length of stay is about two weeks for it. Um, so these, is the, these are our diagnoses unknown, about 15 patients, uh, uh, chronic kidney disease, 10. We have done some patients who come in in extremists who, want, who, are, who are willing to do dialysis. And we've had, I had one young man who came in that was in severe distress. Um, and over 48 hours of peritoneal dialysis, we were able to get him uh, volume status corrected and ship him off for, to a hemodialysis center. I mean, basically, he would not have survived without the PD. So uh, we do do some of that. Um, uh, some of the infections, uh, malaria is the thing that where this really works very, very well in, in malaria because they almost always recover. Uh, so we've had good success with that. HIV is more problematic. Uh, depend, many of those patients have acute uh, uh, they have more chronic uh, disease, uh, high van. Um, with, um, uh, we're getting into tenofovir toxicity and some things like that now. And uh, we will do some of them. We have, but if they have, if they have their disease from, from HIV, if that's the primary cause, they don't typically respond very well. So we have referred some for, for chronic uh, hemodialysis. Uh, and then some of the others are just some sepsis and things that uh, show up. Um, glomerulonephritis, uh, HUS, we've had some of that nephrotic. Uh, some of those have done okay, but I, I, by, by diagnosis, I, I don't know. Hypertension, um, diabetes, toxins. Um, uh, we had a child who was overdosed on genomycin, uh, was sent up from the but the, the interesting thing is that the nephrologists in the capital don't know how to do, they don't have a program for doing this. So they referred this, it was a, about a nine-month-old, I think, who 
got overdosed on, on genomycin and went into acute renal failure. And the kid did great. And uh, we sent him back. And so we now are actually getting ready to go down and help them to set this program up, we think. And when we get back, they're interested in, in doing it. Um, heart failure, others. Uh, so that's kind of the, the mix uh, that we have. Uh, you can see kind of the, the effect. Uh, the second column or third column over is the admission creatinine versus discharge, BUN, uh, potassium. We, uh, our potassiums, I would have thought, are higher than that, but that's what the numbers show. Uh, but we get a lot of patients with uh, potassiums of seven or eight. And over the, over the first, uh, you can usually within 24 hours get them down significantly into a much safer range. Um, I don't know if you want to go back. I don't know if everyone can see, but just uh, point out on the mean. So the, the creatinines came down to about half, and the ureas are down to about a third. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are obviously other indications. Patients are beginning to make urine and, and reasons that the dialysis. Yeah. So we, what we do is, uh, by the time we get the, crea- the creatinines uh, down into the 5-6 range, um, we will, a lot of those patients that are going to recover will be starting to make some urine, and so we're, uh, we take them off. The, very, the nice thing about this is when you take them off, all you do is drain them, cap the tube, and, you know, and let them walk around with, this, uh, with the catheter in their belly. And if you, if you did it too soon, the creatinine goes up, and you want to restart it, you just have to hook it up again. So it's, a very, it's very easy that way to, you're not making any major clinical commitment that. What's your potassium threshold to start PD, even with a high creatinine? Well, we don't, uh, we have caxolate. We don't, we don't manage potassium with the dialysis. Uh, we, we're just really looking at uh, the creatinine and fluid balance mostly. And even uh, the interesting thing is that the, the people who are doing hemodialysis in the country also do it that way. So, uh, again, we kind of learned this from them that they were, you would have thought they had special baths or something, but they, they, that's not how they do it. They just give caxolate uh, in that setting. So it works, it works well. Um, and it's usually only maybe four doses of it that you have to give something. It's not a big deal uh, to do. Uh, complications, about uh, 13 or, uh, patients or 18% got peritonitis. Uh, peritonitis has not been a major setback for it. They get, if they get cloudy fluid they get, and you do a cell count on the fluid, um, we put them on. The easy thing that we do is just put them on systemic antibiotics, usually uh, gen- uh, ceftriaxone for uh, usually three or four days, five days. And... We've not had big problems with that not uh, being sufficient for them. And, and we've not had to stop. Dialysis. Yeah, we've not stopped dialysis uh, in the meantime for that. Um, a real nephrologist would put the fluid, uh, put the antibiotics into the fluid probably, or they would put things like insulin in or other things like that. But uh, we just, if they have hyperglycemia, we just give them insulin systemically. We, I'm much more comfortable with that than trying to mess around with figuring out how to put, how much uh, insulin to put into the bag. And all. I, it's, I'm sure the residents will figure this out, just like you tried your 8%. Uh, yeah. They're anxious to do that. Uh, survival is about 73%. Um, 
the one about uh, 31 patients, 48, just about half of them are off dialysis, recovered entirely, um, and uh, 16 or about a quarter were referred for hemodialysis. Seven, um, 17 died. Uh, the point being, though, they don't die of renal disease. That's not the thing that kills them. They die of their underlying problem, whatever it was that put them into acute renal failure. So what you're doing, you're, man- you're able to manage one aspect of, the, of these severely ill uh, patients. And you t- kind of take that away, and then, you know, not everybody, we're not able to manage the, the other problems in everybody. But um, it is a, having this... Uh, Having this modality available has been a major boon to us in, a, in our uh, just in the management of patients. If you know you can, uh, if you have a patient that's uh, the creatinine is climbing, you you can feel pretty free to hydrate them aggressively, and uh, you know that if you overshoot, uh, you still have a way of uh, recovering with that, and that gives you a lot more confidence to be to be bolder than you might be otherwise. And anyway, it's. Uh, I think that that's uh, we're pretty satisfied. We, I mean, there's always room for improvement, certainly. But someday, perhaps, we'll have a full-time nephrologist, and you know, they'll really move our program further ahead. So, I was going to comment uh, just on the full-time nephrologist. So, I'm old enough so I would, that my mentor started, uh, and actually, it was in the state of Iowa uh, where I uh, had my nephrology training, but. The, there was no such thing as nephrology as a specialty. So who ran the first dialysis? So we tapped neurologists, general internists, and family medicine docs. And you might want to comment on how the residents now are doing. Yeah, the, the residents, originally this was kind of a big deal. And, you know, and uh, they always felt like they had to consult me before they were bold enough to go ahead and do it. You know, now it's just another procedure that we do, and and they know the indications, and if they can justify it, they call the surgeons, and I'll find out the next in a day or two that they're doing it. If I if I manage to get to the ICU, but it's uh, it's just kind of one of the things that we do routinely in the management of these patients. And you know, as I say, we get uh, sometimes we'll have two or three patients on at a time, and then when they when those patients are finished, then uh, there will be a, a gap where we don't have anybody for a while. Uh, this, these are the people that uh, contributed to really helping set this up. Uh, Amy Newfield is, a, is an RN from Canada, from Edmonton, who actually, uh, she and uh, Ivor put together a video. If you're interested in this, uh, I can make it available to you. Uh, there's a, we have it, it's uploaded into a Dropbox site, so I can just give you access to it. But it's a, it, it's a, like a 20-minute video. It's in, it's it's kind of a, for training nurses more than for uh, for physicians. But it shows you step by step exactly how to, how it's all done. And um, uh, these are some of the physicians that uh, have been there. Dr. Hemphill is a nephrologist that originally was the first nephrologist we had that, that helped us and did some of the training with us. And um, those are the others. Uh, Dr. Finkelstein is at the Renal Research Foundation. Um, and this is this is us. Uh, this is our current uh, internal medicine team. This is this is the internal medicine residency program. Our faculty and residents and nurse practitioners and taking a few a little while back. 
So questions? I was going to make just a quick comment, and then we'll take, take some questions. Uh, one thing I neglected to mention that you probably got a feel, and some of you may know, you know how long it takes for the kidneys to recover after acute injury. So we're talking a couple, three weeks, okay? Um, and therefore, the program was designed to tie people over with supplies for a month. And uh, as Dennis mentioned, Dr. Robert, there's Alba and the hemodialysis. Um, uh, one other thing we didn't talk about is, is this suitable to, to be done at home? Uh, certainly, uh, our neighbor to the south, Mexico, it does a predominance of peritoneal dialysis versus hemodialysis in the U.S. Uh, and so then you really are going to have problems with uh, sterility or cleanliness of peritonitis to try to do it chronically long-term, and we haven't really tried to tackle that. I think those are the two comments. In the future, perhaps. Yeah. The Renal Research Foundation, what is their role for other hospitals in sub-Saharan Africa? Are they interested in partnering there? Or? I, yeah, they, the... the uh, these people, Mary Carter, uh, that's what the, this is a project that they have where they're trying to push it out into into that part of the world. And especially just uh, their program is for just the acute um, less than 30 days is what they're is what they're angling for. So um, they were they were very supportive in, in helping us get going because uh, none of us had any experience in this uh, when we started. And uh, I think that um, they would be very interested in, in setting, helping people set up programs other, in other places. Uh, they, had a, they sponsored a conference in Dakar uh, a year ago that we sent one of our senior residents to. And, um, it's actually going to be in Cameroon next March. So yeah. March 17th. 17th. But it will be in uh, Yaoundé. Yeah. But we're happy to talk with you afterwards and keep in touch, especially with Dr. Fred Finkelstein, who's at Yale, and very interested in expanding. Would you uh, purchase your PD catheter? Isn't that an inexpensive item? Uh, the, the Renal Research Foundation was able to get us a, a donation. Uh, they came from England, and uh, that's, how we, that's where they came from. And I guess we getting a ship from England tended to Turned out to be a little problematic, but uh, we did get. The National Society of Perineal Dialysis, and, and they have, anyway, there is a connection to get them that probably the best. And that's actually the so the nice thing about this system is that's the only thing that you have to buy is uh, from outside the country is the is the catheter. But they were very they they found a source, and and so we have not paid for it. If you buy them, they're couple of hundred dollars a piece, I think. From the stores in England? Uh, from any, that's the current price. If you if if you got it from a medical supplier, they're around two hundred dollars a piece. So they're pretty expensive. Um, well, I've never. They're up in that price range. Is what I, I I've not tried to buy them. We we were sourcing for free ones, and uh, finally succeeded. We've got about twenty five, I think now. So we're good for the next year or so. It's also something that some of these organizations that harvest fair medical supplies like MedShare on their um, inventory list. So.
Are they here? Uh, this is, he's going to do that. <laughs> Pending. <laughs> so we just took a look at this number of patients. Now we last analyzed it earlier in the year. But yes, uh, we can get contact information with you from you if you wish. Well, I mean, I have seen what you have, and I can access this online. But my experience in Africa and CMDS conferences were... There are large groups of, of practicing physicians. People aren't really doing peritoneal dialysis. We've done a couple just sort of flying by the seat of our pants because we see the person was dying. We had lactated <coughs> ringers and we figured, what do we have to lose? You know, we just plugged an IV cannula into their belly and kept it there for a few days and managed to get the person through their crisis. Yeah. You know, but you have a, be- a much better system and then just promoting it as something that this is less complicated than an emergency cesarean section. All of the mission hospitals are doing that. If they can do this for a short period of time, it'll be labor intensive, you know, training the nurses, dedicating the nurses to carefully filling out those. And for us, the laboratory is a problem because we really struggle with the accuracy of the lab. And if they tell you your potassium is 0.1 or 27.6, then what do you do with that? You know, that's just... Yeah. Like a well, we, that's where we, we were when we started. We have just um, a year and a half ago upgraded. So we, and I, being an internist, I think that you really have to, you have to focus on quality lab if you're going to do, move very far forward. And so we, we're running a quality assurance program that costs us uh, about $6,000 a year just to, uh, that we get, it's a big investment, but we actually believe the lab that we get. Well, you have to believe it now because it's probably right. I mean, if you publish in a, in a format like Tropical Doctor that people that are kind of on the ground and would read as opposed to something like The Lancet that people have to pay for, yeah. I think it would be really wonderful. Well, we might. I don't know. We talked about putting it in this Christian journal. Right. Of it'll, it'll be in an international PD, but... Tropical doctor? Is that, yeah. Was that the name? Yeah. I Do people? My colleagues, I'm sure there must be many other doctors in this room. But yeah. that's something that is easily accessible by a lot of people. And I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, we're looking for ways to disseminate. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm monopolizing. Go ahead. No, it's okay. We, we still have 10 minutes. Uh, she asked my publishing question, but uh, the other one I had is uh, Does PD treat all the same toxicities that hemodialysis can treat, such as like, aspirin overdoses? Not all. Okay. So actually, depending on the toxin ingestion, you actually need to look look, uh, look them up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess I don't but know how many of those types of toxicities you get in that environment. Probably depending what kind of meds. We've never. That hasn't been any of the indications for that we've done in this series. Uh, I mean, we've had toxin-induced renal failure. We we about. Uh, in the African literature, uh, they they say that up to 25 or 30 percent of acute renal injury is due to herbal medicines that people are taking. So two and of the ingestion cases, we weren't sure what they had. And was yeah. yeah. There's a lady in South Africa that has published on Cape Aloe because uh, they actually had a patient 
that they use it as a laxative, uh, pur- purging themselves with it, and the guy who develops acute renal failure, and she, they went back and actually uh, identified what the, the drug was. So there's some of it is documented now, but uh, most of our patients, we have no idea. What, but we think that 80% of the patients who come to the hospital have tried herbal medicines before they come, something like that. Yes. Well, we will. We're going to expand it through our system, probably. Uh, and as I said, we just uh, we, we had some contacts. There's a pediatric nephrologist in Yaoundé that they just contacted us to see whether that we could collaborate with them and help them to set it up there so that she could do it. So. Uh, and there's interest from the one renal training program in the capital to have their fellows come to them and go. Yeah. And the problem is we don't do we don't do it frequently enough. I mean, we do about two patients a month on average or so. So it's, you know, you have to be there for a while to get very much experience. So, But we have a lot of patients with renal disease. We just don't uh, do that much per, uh, a high volume. Do you guys take the catheter out before the patient's discharged? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's really interesting in the acute setting to use PD diagnosis. I mean, we use HD all the time. They just pop the catheter and Well, that's difficult. <laughs> uh, we so we do this. We finally settled on doing this in the intensive care unit. Uh, so we have an intensive care unit, which uh, there's a daily charge uh, that's made. And so we, we, all the patients that get this uh, are admitted to the intensive care unit, at least for the first uh, 24, 48 hours. And then if they're stable, they go back to the ward and we move them up there. And, they, and the nurse, But the nurses are the ones in the ICU who do the exchanges. And uh, But just the... You're, so you're running, uh, if you do six uh, exchanges a day, two liters, at, you know, then you're up to 12 liters of IV fluid plus the D50, uh, plus there's a charge for the supplies. Uh, so uh, it, is, it is not inexpensive. But uh, within, in the practice, the range of uh, things in Cameroon, it's, it's affordable. And so um, – we have sort of made the decision that if we do these things, then we we start we will start them based on the medical indication, not whether the patient uh, can afford it or not. And we figure out how to you know how to deal with the finances at a certain point uh, later on. But a lot of uh, it hasn't been. The administrators always hate us losing money for them. But uh, you know these patients when they get well and go home, it's it's pretty amazing, really. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as they come back from the, we start using it. An important you know, procedural question, we start with low volume. Okay. If you, you know, even an adult, if you put two liters in right away, you're going to get leaks. You know, yeah. Just to get the, the process going. Yeah, the nurses, uh, and our nurses now are experienced enough that, you know, we'll tell them to, they'll start with a liter, and then if that goes well, and then, you know, they'll do 1,500, and then by the third, fourth time, they're up to. It also depends on the acuteness of the thing. 
Yes. Yeah. No, we don't give the little babies two liters. Uh, I'm an adult doctor, though. We give all of them two liters. All right. I think our time is up. So thank you very much for coming.